Alright, welcome to a special fifth episode of Friends of Aquinas, where we will enjoy the company of two excellent guests, Dr. E. Michael Jones and His Excellency Bishop Williamson. Now, Your Excellency, the last time you were here, the audience found you invaluable, your insight into Catholic history, so I th thank you for joining me once again. Please, pleasure. Uh, Dr. Jones, during our first interview, you spoke on a variety of topics from the problem of the white man to the value of proper art and aesthetics, which the audience and I enjoyed immensely. So it is my pleasure to say welcome to you for the second time. Thank you. Good to be here. So let us begin. I know the, the time is somewhat short. Dr. Jones will be leaving, uh, leaving us a bit early. So let's go straight to the topic um, you, Dr. Jones, suggested we discuss off-air, uh, where we can go on tangents from there on, which is the claim that the SSPX and kind of the Holocaust affair struck the final blow to Benedict the Sixteenth, forcing him to resign. So would you like to give us, the uh, audience, the background uh, on this and, and go from there? Yeah, well, well, uh uh, basically, we're talking about a period of uh, the unprecedented influence of social engineering on Germany that no one had ever, uh, no na conquered nation had ever been subjected to this type of uh, regimen of brainwashing uh, that the German people have been subjected to during this period of time. Uh, the vengeance uh, was palpable on the uh, the first uh, initial response after Germany was conquered. Uh, on the part of the United States of America it was called the Morgenthau Plan, uh, put into place by the Jewish Secretary of State, uh, Henry Morgenthau Jr. under Franklin Delano Roosevelt. And it was so draconian, the, the purpose of it was to basically starve the German people to death. Uh, this almost happened during the summer of uh, on, I'm sorry, during the winter of 1946-47. It's called Das Hungerjahr in German history. It's still there, even in all the politically correct texts. Uh, and uh, uh, the, the response, the, uh, the, the saving response uh, from the German people came from the Catholic Church. And I'm talking in particular, the only man who stood up to defend uh, the German people at this time was Cardinal Frings of Cologne who told the people basically that um, if, if there's a warehouse down the street that has food, um, take the food. It's not theft. Same thing with coal. And that got them through that winter. And uh, Frings stood up to the Allies, and eventually the Allies had second thoughts. Uh, people like Herbert Hoover was calling the Morgenthau Plan Semitic vengeance against the German people, and it was replaced by the Marshall Plan. The Marshall Plan well, sent money to Germany, but it became a more subtle form of uh, oppression, and that was the social engineering that I mentioned. One of the main uh, vehicles of social engineering was uh, the sexualization of the culture, specifically the spread of pornography. The Allies brought pornography into Germany during this period of time. And once again, the man of the hour was Cardinal Frings. There was a German organization called the Volkswagenbund. Uh, equivalent to the American Legion of Decency, which basically fought obscenity from the late 19th century. And Frings joined forces with them, and they went toe-to-toe -to -toe with the Allied forces who were determined to impose uh, pornography and sexual liberation on the German people as a way of making sure they stayed conquered and docile. Okay, during this period of time, a young man, he's 20 years old, at, and during the Hungaryar, 20 years old in 1947, it's Joseph Ratzinger who becomes uh, the das Wunderkind of the Catholic Church during this time. Everybody thinks he's a brilliant man. 
1959, uh, he's transferred to Bonn, and Bonn is a little bit south of Cologne. And at that point, he meets Cardinal Frings. And Cardinal Frings uh, tells him, uh, there's going to be a council uh, in Rome. I'd like you to come with me. And Ratzinger agreed. And this is uh, the beginning of their relationship. He goes down. He becomes a peritus uh, at Rome. And now we have a collaboration. Now, what does Ratzinger bring to the table? Well, first of all, when he gets to Rome, he's confronted by the preliminary documents, which were written by Cardinal Ottaviani. Uh, in his book, Zeval's biography, he talks about it clearly. Uh, he talks about it in his own memoir. He said that this had to go. This is too negative. It was too reminiscent of the the uh, uh, modern anti-modernist uh, uh, oath of Pius X, of the syllabus of errors, Pius IX. We need a positive approach. We don't want to be uh, burdened by uh, history. Well, at this point, it becomes clear that Ratzinger has been influenced by the social engineering of the German people. He feels guilt, I think, a collective guilt, uh, because uh, that's what the Holocaust is there to do. It's a narrative that is supposed to impose guilt on the German people. So he succeeds in uh, getting rid of the preliminary documents. And then we have the new documents come in. And Gaudium et Spes says that the church has nothing to fear from the modern world. This, uh, what I'm saying here, I'm proposing here, is that at this point at Vatican II, through Nostra Aetate, for example, uh, the Holocaust narrative was imposed on the Catholic Church. And as a result, the Church was helpless, completely helpless in dealing with moral issues uh, like Hollywood's subversion of the morals in the United States, because it was uh, Jews who ran Hollywood, and Jews were now our friends, and the Church was now saying that uh, the church is opposed to all forms of anti-Semitism. That's in Nostra Tate with ever, without ever defining uh, what anti-Semitism means. So 1965, 64, uh, the, uh, uh, the, the Swedes get together, Ingmar Bergman and a Jew named Harry Schein get together, and they uh, spring a movie called The Silence, Tisnaden in uh, Schweigen in German, and break the code basically in Germany. They break, they, they violate all of the obscenity laws uh, in Germany. They're a dead letter. And at this point, the Catholic Church in Germany abandons the Volkswagenbund, abandons its own legion of decency. One year later, the same thing happened in the United States of America uh, with a movie called The Pawnbroker, uh, which is a Holocaust movie. The Catholic Church, it's a Holocaust movie. We've just passed Nostra Aetate. I don't know what to do. And so they broke the code in America. At this point, the Jews had free reign to take over the mind of, of Germany and the United States. And that's precisely what happened with catastrophic consequences for faith and morals uh, up to this day. Now, the man who should have done something about this was Joseph Ratzinger. Uh, I, uh, Cardinal George told a friend of mine that basically uh, just as John Paul II was brought in uh, as Pope to deal with the Polish question, which was the question of communism, Joseph Ratzinger was brought in to deal with the German question, which is basically the Holocaust, guilt, and so on and so forth. Okay, so just as John Paul II gave that famous, said mass 1979 in June, 
to one million people and started the ball in Warsaw, started the ball rolling toward the abolition of communism. Ratzinger went to Munich uh, one year after being elected pope and gave a speech on Muslims. Wait a minute. That's not the speech. That's not the burning issue in Germany. There's another group of people that is the burning issue. He didn't do it. And as a result, this came, this meaning the Holocaust, came and back to bite him and it destroyed the papacy. And the our, our uh, other our illustrious guest here, Bishop Williamson, had a crucial role in that regard because of what has come to be known as the uh, whole, uh, the uh, Williamson affair, which is basically uh, Bishop Williamson got lured into a trap in Bavaria uh, by a Swedish film team who, this is what he told me, uh, they had bis- bis- interviewed him with uh, a lot of insignificant questions. They were packing up, ready to go home, and then the announcer says, oh, by the way, what do you think about the Holocaust? Now, this was a crucial moment. Because every headline in the world, beginning in Germany, said Pope allows Holocaust denier into the church. That was the attack. And the church stood there like a deer in the headlights and didn't know what to say. First of all, what is a Holocaust denier? This was a term that was invented by uh, a lady named Debbie Lipstadt in Atlanta, Uh, in 1993. It is not a category of reality. It's a category of the mind. But because the church could not deal with this, because Ratzinger was pope, he's a German, he had been subjected to social engineering, all of this baggage, uh, that wrecked the papacy of Pope Benedict XVI. And the wreck of that papacy led to the current situation with Pope Francis. Okay, that's my thesis. I hope this will lead to some type of fruitful discussion. <laughs> well, uh, what frightens, what sort of now frightens me about the Holocaust question, whenever it comes up, nobody, practically nobody, seems to want to go into the question, is it true, is, is what the Holocaust is meant to represent, is it what it's meant to stand for, is what it means, is it true or not? Is it historically true or was it not historically true? Nobody goes into that question. And that is what you say is very true. If the church, if the Catholic church refuses to take stand on truth, it's powerless. Truth is the great power of the church. It's its great strength. And if the church says we don't want we, we don't want to know the truth, we aren't interested in the truth. Forget about the truth, the historical truth, the reality truth. Then the church is destroying itself. The church is committing suicide, which corresponds yeah. to or corresponds to what you say. You've, right. You're filling in a lot of interesting details, but essentially, uh, what you say is true. Namely, the church is is refusing to stand on truth. And then the other thing, that, the other fatal thing, of course, is that a lot of Catholics come to the point of saying, oh, that's not our fight. We're spiritual. We're not historic. We're not into history. We're not into the past. We're not into politics. We're into spirituality. And that's another deadly, deadly recipe for the church. It's a deadly stand for the church to take. The church can't take that stand. History is the church's business. The, 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 The reality of what mankind is doing 
what it thinks it's doing, what it means to be doing, and what it does in history is very much the church's business. It's Almighty God's business. It's the business of the Ten Commandments. It's the business of the church. And for the church to say we're not interested in politics is deadly. Right. We're not interested in truth. We're not interested in politics. We're not interested in the truth in politics. It's fatal for the church. But the church was going soft. No, I... I, I I agree. I agree. I, the first time I met Ratzinger was in Philadelphia, and uh, he was Cardinal Ratzinger at that point. And uh, he gave a speech in which the gist of the speech was, are you willing to suffer for the truth? That, that was the gist of his speech. Well, I felt like asking him, are, are you willing to suffer for the truth? Because he had a moment. It went, went at the beginning of his papacy, when he went to Munich, it was two million people showed up. A million people, two million people. The thing in Cologne was two million and so on and so forth. He had a moment. He had the world's attention at that point. And at yep. that point, he should have addressed the Holocaust because that is the fundamental German issue. And his first responsibility is to the German people, just as Pope John Paul II's first responsibility was to the Polish people. Now, if he had said something, if what you're saying, if he had said what you were saying and said, well, it, it, it's this is not true and therefore it has no hold on your conscience, he would have broken the law in Germany at that point. And that would have been the best thing that ever happened to the church. Because at that point, at that point, then the German government is thinking, well, do we arrest the pope? That, that's an interesting, kill mange le pape, il meurt. The, the man who eats the pope dies. Right. Uh, they, uh, okay, are we going to arrest the Pope? Okay, or are we just going to let this whole, uh, let's be specific, paragraph uh, 130, I believe, against Volksverhetzung, against racial incitement. So that becomes a dead letter if we don't prosecute the Pope. This would have put the German government in a complete dilemma and would have been a win-win situation for the church, but he couldn't do it. Because he had, he had internalized the commands of his oppressors. Yes, that's correct. I think that's entirely correct. And he wasn't the only one, obviously. But it's a whole process of liberalism and, and the, the, the softening, the mushing of people's minds. And Hegel had a lot to do with that. So, and, and I think Ratzinger, I forget the name of the theologian, but a, th a theologian whose first time I think was Joseph, the early 19th century in Germany, I think. And the family name may have gone by the D. But there was a, 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 a theologian, a German theologian of, of that era, a Hegelian, a follower of Hegel, who had a great influence on Ratzinger's thinking. And um, Ratzinger was a Hegelian, basically. In other well, words, there, there, there was, there was a, there was a German, a Catholic, uh, what should you say, a Catholic uh, following of the uh, German idealists, more, more following Schelling than, than uh, Hegel, uh, but it was, it was repeated, it was shut down. Uh, Kloiken just shut it down. The, 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 the circle around uh, um, Leo the Thirteenth. Uh, when he was, I forget his Italian name, but uh, that they they created uh, Civiltà Cattolica under Pius IX, and that dealt with world the world situation. And uh, when Leo the Thirteenth uh, became uh, Pope, uh, he was a Thomist, and this was the flowering of the Neo-Thomist movement. And he passed uh, Eterni Patris, 
which made uh, uh, Thomism normative in every Catholic university throughout the world, uh, including Notre Dame. Notre Dame adopted this in 1953. It was the great flowering of Thomism uh, in, in, in Europe. Yeah. And uh, Ratzinger wasn't part of it. Ratzinger said in his memoir, I don't like, he didn't like Thomas Aquinas. He liked, he liked Augustine much better. And there was a, an anti-Thomist reaction at Vatican II. There's no question about it. And I think that the, the main, I mean, let's be honest here. I think there's a flaw in Thomism. And the fact is, it's based on Aristotle. And Aristotle doesn't have history. There's no history here. And you've got a, a religion that is based on a, his, a historical narrative, Christianity. And so there's a conflict here that had to be resolved. I think it could have been resolved. Uh, but what you had at, at, um, at this moment in places like Notre Dame was a kind of ahistorical Thomism. And all these people, the, the reaction was building and it came out in Vatican II. It was in many ways a repudiation of Thomism. If you repudiate Thomism, you repudiate certainty. And once you do that, then you're you're on uncharted waters. Yes, yes. There's there's something I would say. There's something in what you say, but I can't agree entirely because um, uh, Aristotle is a historical. Yes, he's abstract. He's thinking abstractly, but he's thinking reality. It's pure, but it's pure common sense. And St. Thomas Aquinas didn't have to change much in Aristotle. And, and it's true, the, the Summa Theologia is also a historical. It's, it abstracts from history, but uh, it's the very marrow and, and essence of history, the reality which it analyzes in its abstract way. St. Thomas and Aristotle is the very essence of, the, of, the, of reality. So I don't think you can blame Aristotle. I don't think you can blame St. Thomas Aquinas. What you can blame is a whole culture which has been going liberal uh, in Europe ever since the French Revolution. The liberalism conquered with liberty, equality, fraternity, uh, and uh, liberalism was undermining the whole of the, steadily undermining the whole of the 19th century. Germanic form, Hegel, especially through Hegel after Kant. Uh, Pius X names Kant. Well, he doesn't name him actually, but he quotes a vital principle of Kant as being the very essence of modernism in his, in his encyclical Pascendi. And that, I think, is where the, the problem is. It's an abstract problem because Kant is also working the abstract. It's not, but it, the abstract works out in history, which is why it can seem as though abstract philosophers and theologians are, are ahistorical, but they are, the good ones go to the very essence of reality, whereas the bad ones, like Hegel and Kant, go to some dreamland of, uh, of contradiction in which, you know, contra co contradiction, things contradictory don't exclude one another. It's a complete uh, undoing of the mind, a mushing of the mind, which results in Vatican II. Yeah, I, uh, there was uh, a struggle here. Uh, I think that uh, Ratzinger kind of solved the problem, at least in his own mind, by uh, distinguishing uh, the American Revolution from the French Revolution. Oh. He, gave, he gave a speech you know, uh, right before he was elected Pope to the Curia about what it was like to be uh, in Rome during the Second Vatican Council. And he said, uh, we understood that there was a good enlightenment 
And the good enlightenment was America. Uh, and, and America, well, they, you know, God bless America. That's all I can say. But uh, uh, if you're talking about Thomas Jefferson, uh, he was every bit as uh, against religion as, as the philosophers. But anyway, th this is what Ratzinger actually said, whether, whether we agree with it or not. And I think that uh, that's what led Time magazine to call, uh, call Ratzinger the, the first American pope. He was clearly on the side of the Americans because I think he felt that America allowed the church to make peace with the Enlightenment. I think that was that was the role that America played. Uh, and I think that's what uh, guided the church during this period of time. It was the American empire. Let's face it. It was the American empire because at that point, the early point, or certainly at the time of Vatican II, they, they were engaged in a fight against communism. And we all hated communism, so therefore, whatever they did was good. It was a completely naive understanding of America, a completely, completely missed the boat. And at the same time, they're fighting communism. They are destroying Catholic culture throughout Europe. This was in Ottaviani's document. To Ottaviani said there's a problem. There's a problem with communism, but there's a problem with Hollywood and psychoanalysis. Well, who are they? What what group of people is involved in Hollywood and psychoanalysis? It was a, a, a veiled reference to the Jews, certainly a reference to America, but a veiled reference to the Jews. And at that point, no, no, we don't want to go there. I think that this was the dynamic of Vatican II. It was basically the Holocaust narrative haunting the entire council with Ratzinger using Frings as his mouthpiece to basically... Uh, bring about a new era of reconciliation with the Enlightenment. I think that's true. The, reconcili the reconciliation of um, the godless modern world, because it's liberal, because of the Enlightenment, with, um, with the religion of God. And at Vatican II, the churchmen sided with the, mo the godless modern world against the religion of God, and that was the virtual end of the true religion of God. At that point, I'm going to disagree with you. No, I don't think it was the end of the true religion. Oh, I think that the, the yeah. str I think the struggle is still continuing to this oh, day. Yes, of course it is. No, I don't, don't. I don't take me to mean that. I think you know the church is is going to come to an end. No way. But what I mean is, it was for purposes of 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 the minds of the mass of people. It was the justification of the apostasy. Let's put it that way. And for the minds of, unfortunately, far too many of the churchmen, it was the end of the church. The church was finished. The true church was finished in the minds of a lot of churchmen at Vatican II. But of course, the true church wasn't finished. No, I completely agree with you there. Oh yes, that, that's 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 not what I mean. Right, and it, it got stronger because you had the collaboration between uh, John Paul II and the Reagan administration as the culmination of the anti-communist crusade. And yeah. I, I was just getting started as a, a young editor of a magazine at that point. And yeah. I remember those days, you know, like Wordsworth talking about, "'Twas bliss to be alive then, you know? It was all of the stars were in alignment, church and state completely united in the fight against communism, and it turned out to be successful. Uh, and the problem is uh, the successes uh, that you have like this, it cemented the idea in the minds of Catholics, that America, what, what, what America was 
the was was the church in action? <laughs> is this is this what it was? America is the church in action, or something like that, in the minds of Catholics throughout the world. And they still they still haven't gotten. Well, I guess they're getting over it now. I mean, with the Biden administration and that train wreck. But I mean, this was the, the this was the the central myth of my youth as as a young man. Yes. Yes. Now, liberalism prepares, makes the bed for communism, prepares, it prepares communism. So if, if a liberal state is pretending to be anti-communist, uh, it, uh, it's, it's either not true to the liberal state or it's completely misunderstanding what communism is. Because liberalism and communism are on the same wrong side of um, the fight for or against God. Liberalism is against God and communism is against God. The idea that liberalism can be at for God is an accident. It's it's not of the essence of liberalism. Liberalism is deadly. You you can find this certainly in Pius the Ninth. You can find it in Leo the Thirteenth, where he says, "I think that capitalism is is the father of socialism, and then it's the grandfather of Bolshevism." Yeah. Uh, I, I, that's that's clear. But now we're not talking that this isn't the language we are using in in this in the nineteen sixties. We have uh, John Courtney Murray dominated uh, Vatican II in some sense or another, certainly with their church and state issue. John Courtney Murray, as we have pointed out, uh, was uh, working with the CIA yeah. at this point. There were there were two groups that were trying to subvert the Second Vatican Council. The CIA was working with John Courtney Murray through Time Life. Time Life, uh, Time Magazine was the, the propaganda ministry of uh, the CIA. Uh, the man who was working bo both sides was a man by the name of C.D. Jackson, a Jew who had grown up in propaganda during World War II. And the other group was was the Jews, and they were working. B'nai B'rith and uh, the American, uh, American Jewish Committee were using Father Malachi Martin as their agent uh, to basically get Nostra Aetate to declare that the Jews were not guilty uh, for the death of Christ. That was their goal. They didn't get it. Uh, but it doesn't change the fact that those two powerful groups were working to undermine the church. Now, I, I am going to say here that they did not succeed. OK, I am going to say that uh, I will con I will concede uh, Nostra Aetate. I, I, I read the documents. I read the back and forth. Mr. Schuster was very unhappy because they didn't get uh, an exoneration for killing Christ. But they did put something in there. They said the church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. Well, what does that mean? Does that mean everything the ADL says is now dogma in the church? Well, it is. That is de facto the case. And that is the fundamental problem with, with the church right now. It has internalized the commands of its oppressors. Traditionally, who were the oppressors of the Christians? It was the Jews. Read. Yeah. I don't have to tell you to read the Acts of the Apostles. But I mean, that's the story is right there. Sure, absolutely. No, that is they. It's those people, the awkward people, the WKW. We know who. It's those people that have been the steady and constant enemies of Christ. They hate him because he took away all their privileges. Uh, the, he 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 replaced Christ was responsible for changing the people of God from a people of, by, of God by race to a people of God by faith. And that took away from the, the Jews their special position. And um, they've hated Christ for it ever since. And their pride is, is deeply hurt 
by the by Christ, uh, by his humiliating of them, by his taking away from them of their special status as the people of God and opening it up to, to the Gentiles. That's what's in the Act of the Apostles. And that's what's in the teaching of St. Paul. There are a lot of quotes by St. Paul, which are word, the word of God in his epistles about the Jews, because the Jews were a very special problem of the church from the very beginning. And it's they who are behind communism, they who are behind Freemasonry, and they who are behind Vatican II, and they who are now behind the Ukraine war. It's right. always them. Right. You're right. I, I, I asked a graduate student in theology at Notre Dame, I asked her, uh, who said uh, the Jews are the people that kill Christ and are enemies of the entire human race? And she said, without missing a beat, Adolf Hitler. I said, well, no, no, that was uh, St. Paul in, in 1 Thessalonians 2. That's now, right. if, if a graduate student in theology, I mean, I'm not, it's Notre Dame, admittedly, but I mean, a graduate student in theology thinks this, it shows me how deeply the church has internalized the Holocaust narrative. Absolutely. I completely agree with you. And the Holocaust is the, is the concrete. It, the Holocaust is not at all abstract. The Holocaust is heaps of shoes, heaps of spectacles, a particular kind of gas. Uh, it, it's very concrete. The Hebrews have a gift for concreteness uh, and this very concrete story, they have a gift for propaganda. They have a gift for uh, isolating a particular person who concretizes the, their, the abstract problem for them. And they, they, they pin it on a person, which is elementary propaganda technique. But they, the Jews know it and the rest of the world behaves as though it doesn't know it. That's right. That's right. There is I, just to say a good word for Hegel. Uh, he came up with a concept called uh, "die List der Vernunft" or the cunning of reason, which I think is a powerful concept. And I think we're witnessing that today, today as as we speak. Now, "die List der Vernunft" is not the the, the, the cunning of, of religion; it's the cunning, cunning of reason. I said yeah. the I said the cunning of reason. If I said religion, I misspoke. Vernunft is reason. Or Logos, it's his word for Logos. Yes. So we have a situation right now. Uh, the United States Supreme Court has overturned Roe versus Wade. This yes. now uh, this caused a huge uproar, media incited uproar, just of the kind that you experienced. Uh, and now something totally new has emerged. The Jews are now saying abortion is a fundamental Jewish value. Yeah completely out of the blue. They never said this before. And then they go on to say, if you prohibit abortion, you will prevent Jews from practicing their religion. And then they take it one step further. This is chutzpah. They always push it too far. Being, being anti-abortion means being anti-Semitic. Yep. Now, how, how is the church going to deal with this? The church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. So now the church must support abortion. <laughs> this, is, this is the logical outcome of Catholic Jewish dialogue over the past 50 years. We now have to support abortion. Otherwise, we're not good Catholics because we're anti-Semitic. You've got it. I think you're absolutely right. Yes, it's, it's insane. For any, any sane mind, any sane Catholic, Somebody to declare that, that um, abortion is a right of theirs is absolutely to discredit 
whoever those people are. They're going slap up once again, go to the truth of the matter. They're going slap up against God's sixth commandment. Thou shalt not kill. And they're violating directly one of the Ten Commandments. Uh, how can a Catholic, how can a sane Catholic think anything but but bad of such people? They're, 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 they're tipping their hand when they say that, when you, as I'm sure you're, you know, as you quote them saying, when they say uh, abortion is a Jewish right, they're, they're, they're tipping their hand. They're showing that they're satanic. This, they, you're right. There are certain theological conclusions that we have to draw from this. So who, what is this religion? Is it the religion of Moses? Is this the religion of the Torah? Or is it the religion of the other Hebrews? Remember the other Hebrews? They worship Moloch. Exactly. And, and if you worship Moloch, your sacrament is offering your child up and child sacrifice to this God. Well, th th then who, who has the church been dialoguing with? all these years this this is this is 140 jewish organizations have all come out and said abortion is a fundamental jewish value we we have to draw the conclusion that these people they're not the children of moses they're moloch worshipers absolutely absolutely and the church has got to take a stand on god it's god's sixth commandment that makes abortion evil of course Abortion is intrinsically anti-natural against human nature. To kick to kill without need is uh, is is absolutely against God. So these are enemies of God. If the Jews say that abortion is a Jewish right, the Jews are declaring we are against the one true God. That's what they're saying. That's the theological conclusion to be drawn. If you go into the truth of the matter, like if you go into the truth of the Holocaust, you find it's historically simply not true. All of the arguments against, it's only the emo emotions which are for six million people having been killed by a deliberate policy of extermination. But the, uh, the historical arguments are all against six million people having been killed by a deliberate policy of extermination. <clears throat> so these people can't think, they don't think, they emote, they're very clever at exploiting emotion, at arousing emotion, at stirring up emotion by propaganda, by at ex exploiting emotion, but they don't think, and anybody who approves of what they're doing doesn't realize what he's saying, and doesn't realize who, who, who all the true God is, and what the one true God stands for. They just don't know God, they don't know our Lord Jesus Christ, they don't know the true religion, they don't know the truth. They don't want to know the truth. All Jews and all Gentiles who think like these Jews, except, of course, there are always decent Jews, there are decent Jews, but they're not a majority. And as you quoted uh, a little while ago, uh, the second chapter of the first epistle of Paul to the Thessalonians, the, these poor people, the awkward people, are enemies of God, enemies of life and enemies of man. And that's why they love abortion, because abortion is against life, obviously. Abortion is also against the selfish way of, the selfish and sinful, abortion favors the selfish and sinful way of life of modern man, which is intrinsically war on God. So people just don't, don't think they don't know. And of course you breathe a word, one word, against the awkward people, and you just mention the, 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 the Jew word, 
and it's the most electronic word, ele electrocuting word in, in the vocabulary. That's what they have managed to do. And that's the next most ele electrocutory word is anti-Semitic. Once your label is anti-Semitic, oh boy, you've got or everybody's emotions are running against you. Yeah. It's, it's war on God. Right. Modern man is making war. And war, and war on the church. This and is, and, and, and uh, uh, Peter Zewald, I think, understands this. He understands the fact that uh, the Williamson affair destroyed the papacy of Benedict the Sixteenth because he couldn't articulate. I'm talking about Pope Benedict now. Could yes. not articulate any of the things that we are talking about right now. Could not articulate it. No. Could not articulate the fact that their Holocaust denial is a completely bogus concept that was made up a few years ago uh, because. Uh, the trials, uh, the Zundel trials and things like that in Canada exposed the whole uh, hollowness of the Holocaust narrative. It couldn't be defended anymore. It couldn't be defended. And so therefore it had to be made illegal to, to criticize it. And that's the situation. Now, this demands a course correction. We cannot go on in this direction. We cannot let this, the Jewish question, go unanswered anymore. Exactly. Anymore. And I'm saying, this is why I brought up Hegel. It was God, through his enemies, who brought the issue to the consciousness of the Catholic Church. We cannot go any farther because if we accept, if we accept the situation now, it means that we have to be pro-abortion because if we're not pro-abortion, we are anti-Semitic, and we can't be that. It's it's either one or the other. You can't have it both ways anymore. This is confronting the church with a, an existential crisis right now, and they're going to have to make up their mind. Well, you will be lucky because people will go on reconciling irreconcilables because they want to keep they want to have their cake and eat it. So. <laughs> we're not we're not we're not talking about people we're talking about the church okay the church cannot the cannot defect when it comes to teaching faith or morals it cannot be defective in that regard because if it were it wouldn't be the church and the gates of hell would have prevailed against it right so so there has to be a course correction if there is no course correction then it's not the church and then what and then what if the church isn't the church, well, our Lord says, if the uh, if 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 these children fall silent, it's in, is uh, in, it's his approaching Jerusalem for the Passion, or just shortly before the, before the, the Holy Week, and the the Pharisees can't you and the children are all cheering and and uh, greeting the Messiah, and uh, the the, the Pharisees turn to our Lord, can't you shut up, shut these children up? And our Lord replies, if these children were to fall silent. The very stones of the street would cry out. So if, Michael, as you say, the churchmen don't change course, Almighty God will raise up children from the stones of the street and those stones will cry out the truth. The truth will be, continue to be heard and it will proclaim what you have been saying, namely that these people are enemies of God, which is what St. Paul says, which is what Almighty God says in his word, which is the second epistle, to the first epistle to the Thessalonians, chapter two. That's uh, when the Spiegel, the Spiegel was the ringleader in this conspiracy. 
against uh, Benedict the Sixteenth. It's yeah. a it's a licensed uh, journal. They got a license from a Jew by the name of Morde David Mordecai Levy after World War II, and they have to uh, uh, accept the terms of their license. Okay, but that being said, they had the final word, I think, because they accused Ratzinger after he resigned. The resignation they brought about after he resigned, they accused him of Fahnenflucht, Fahnenflucht, desertion, desertion, desertion under fire, even though they, they brought it about. And I think they were right. I think they were right because at the beginning of his papacy, he told Zaval, or Zaval quotes in his book, but he said, pray that when the wolves come that I don't flee. Yes. Well, he fled. They're in an unprecedented fashion. Okay, he yes. fled, and and that led directly to the papacy of Francis, which I think everyone concedes is a complete train wreck. Uh, yes. Sad, sad to say. So, but you must be. Uh, <laughs> how can I say this? <laughs> do you feel vindicated? I mean, do you, I? C.D. Jackson once said that. Uh, Stalin was the greatest salesman the United States of America had. So I'm going to say Pope Francis is the greatest salesman the SSPX ever had. <laughs> well, I don't know if you're up to date on this one, Michael, but the SSPX is also guilty of fun and flu. No, I, I, I know. I, I know there was a, you, you know, a, par, a, a parting of the ways. I know you're not part of it anymore. I'm just trying. I'm trying to talk about the. The broader perspective. This traditionis custodis, I think, was calculated to drive Catholics into the SSPX. I think that was the, the, the classic, that, that was the intention behind Father Reese. He was the guy who came up with the idea. It's in America magazine. Uh, the, I think that's I think that's what's going on here. I think that's the dynamic right now. Well, it's it's paracidens if um, it's only an it's, it's only an accident if uh, some people think, do think that uh, Pope Francis is wanting to drive all the hens into one coop so that the foxes can then close in on all the remaining hens inside, the, trapped inside the one coop. That he, will, he would, if he lived long enough, smash the SSBX, the, the new SSBX, the neo SSBX, containing all remaining Catholics. Because it would be that much easier to smash them if they're all in one, are now under one head, inside one coop. But um, I don't think that that's the plan of the bad guys. It may well be the plan of the bad guys. But uh, Almighty God remains the master of the game. And I think the answer to your basic concern about the future of the church, if I may put it like that, which is very reasonable, I think the basic answer is Almighty God is going to intervene. And he's going to intervene with an absolutely unprecedented chastisement much worse than the water flood of Noah, a fire flood, which will, uh, Our Lady says, eliminate a large part of mankind, the good with the bad, the priests with the laity, and the survivors will be so desolate that they will envy the dead. I think that's what's in the future. And I think it's out of nothing less than something like that, that the church, the true church can once again flourish. And I think that's when the true church will flourish. But between now and then, the situation is too is too rotten. It's too far rotten. It's too the re, the, the the rot runs deep. I myself believe you may you may well not agree with me. Well, that's that's not a mortal sin. Venial <laughs> sin, though. 
<laughs> I think that uh, Rats, there's something decent in the man Joseph Ratzinger. There is something decent in him. For instance, his release of the old mass. He meant well. And I think, he do, I think he does mean well. But his mind is messed up. The enemy possesses our minds. I think you would say that. Yeah, he's internalized the commands of his oppressors. He's a victim. He's a victim of American Jewish social engineering. Yep. Uh, as a young man, yep. I I I'd like to. Uh, we we uh, met in person a few years back yes. came to talk to you at Wimbledon, yes. and um, you mentioned at that time that uh, you had a, a letter on your desk uh, which said, "I accept Vatican II." in light of tradition. And yeah. and then you spent uh, the next uh, three hours telling me why you couldn't sign that letter, even though you said that uh, Archbishop Lefebvre would have signed that letter. Now, do you, do you think that, first of all, do you think the situation would be different if you had signed that letter? Yes. Do you think, do you think Ratzinger might still be Pope if you had signed that letter? Because you've already said you know, the point is to drive people like you out of the church. It did, I mean, you you know, that that's what I think the strategy was. Do you think uh, had I told you to sign the letter when I walked in the door and you said that I said, well, go up and sign the letter. And we'll talk about tennis or something since we're, since we're at Wimbledon. Uh, do you think you would have the situation would have changed if you had signed that letter? No, no, absolutely not. Uh, it would, might have changed my situation, but um no, 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 no. I'm, I'm, my signing or not signing was not important to the authorities of the SSBX. It wasn't important to Ratzinger. It wasn't important to Rome. It wasn't important to the newspapers. Um, I don't think it would have made any difference. I think, I think you're being far too modest here uh, because the, you had already been uh, turned into a celebrity because of that. I think at this point, uh, Ratzinger could have said that this was a victory. This was a victory because he had healed the schism. Well, I think that might that might have that might have preserved that might have buoyed him up psychologically. Um, it might it might it might have had a positive effect on the church. I don't think so, Michael. I think you I think you're greatly overrating anything that I might have done. I'm serious. That that's not just modesty. I'm serious because there's a truth. The question is truth. Is it true that um, what, what was the what was the letter going to be about? Is it is if I had said that I accept Vatican II, let's say, does that change Vatican to the nature the intrinsic nature of Vatican II? Does it change the absolute intrinsic truth of the of the nature of Vatican II? It wouldn't have changed a thing. Now wait, now wait. Let's go back to that one sentence. The church opposes all forms of anti-Semitism. That is a disastrous sentence. That has to be clarified. Okay? We yeah. cannot mean what the ADL means. Now, uh, that sentence can be interpreted in light of tradition. In other words, the church could say, oh, anti-Semitism, that's racial determinism. We don't believe in that. Anything else is fair game. Anything else. Uh, so we're not accusing Pope or we're not accusing uh, Jesus Christ of being an anti-Semite because he said your father is Satan to the Jews. Wouldn't that have been an instance where you could have interpreted the Vatican II document in light of tradition? Uh, 
to the, the Vatican to the, 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 the intrinsic truth, the objective truth about the do these documents of Vatican II is that they are ambiguous. They can be interpreted in line with tradition. They can be interpreted, but they can equally be interpreted out of line with Catholic tradition. So the truth is that these documents are ambiguous. And another truth is that the Catholic Church does not talk ambiguously. The Catholic Church does not play with truth. Ambiguity is, is double talk. And scripture says it's the, in the Psalms, and it's, it's, it's outside of the Psalms as well, God hates ambiguity. God hates double talk. He hates it. I think it's in Proverbs as well. Um, and that's the objective truth about ambiguity. And that's the final truth about Vatican II. It is ambiguous. And it's because it's ambiguous that it's destroyed the church. Because the good guys, the, the naive guys, the naive good guys can always say, oh yes, but you can interpret it in line with tradition. Yes, you can. But, but that doesn't justify these ambiguities. The ambiguity is intrinsically hateful to God because of its, its slippery nature, and it's, it's halfway to lies. Ambiguity is not a full-blooded lie. If, if Vatican II had dealt in full-blooded lies, uh, the good guys, would, even the naive good guys, would have recognized it straight off, and Vatican II would never have passed. Catholics would never have accepted Vatican II. It's a question of absolute truth and of the objective nature of things, and the fact that um, people have lost grip of objective truth. Very few people still believe that there is an objective truth which is independent of Catholic of, of anybody's minds. No, well, I agree with that. I think you're far too modest. I think you. Uh, I think you could have had uh, an impact, uh, and we and together uh, with other people, we could have come up with a course correction, which would have resolved this ambiguity. Ambiguities are there to be resolved. They're not, they're, they don't have the final word unless we lack the courage to, re, to resolve them. But anyway, I, I, I'm sorry. I've enjoyed this immensely. I wish we could get together more often. Uh, next time you're in the, uh, uh, the area, let me know and we'll get together again. But uh, thank you for uh, allowing me to have this discussion. I got to get off, got to do something else. Please, please give my respects and my regards to um, uh, Mr. Uh, Amin Hadab. I'm sorry, I can't get the name right. Ahmadinejad. I will. Please. Okay, so long. Well, oh, thank so you on. so much, Dr. Jones, for coming on. That was an excellent discussion. Uh, stay on for um, uh, that. I'm talking to the audience now. We'll have a two-minute break, and then we'll be back with uh, Bishop Williamson to discuss this further. Thank you very thank much, you. Dr. Jones. Thank you. Peace. Peace.